Howdy, Ags. Welcome to Aggie Growth Hacks, the podcast powered by the McFerrin Center for Entrepreneurship at Texas A&M that is dedicated to highlighting the fast-growing Aggie entrepreneurs, learning how they overcame growth challenges with creative hacks, and connecting them with other entrepreneurs in the Aggie network. I'm your host, Greg Martin, Fighting Texas Aggie Class of 2001. And I'm your other host, Chris Hunter, Fighting Texas Aggie Class of 1998. Got a little story for you, Ags. UV Doran is a Navy veteran a fighting tech Aggie class of 2010 grad, and he is on a mission to fix the world by providing and manufacturing a safer tank transport for liquid propane. So pass it back and listen to UV as he shares some good bull. Well, we want to just get right into it. And so I I'm, was looking at your uh, your LinkedIn profile a little bit earlier. So you are a Texas A&M graduate of class of 2010. Uh, you are unique in that you are both a uh, University of Texas and Texas A&M grad. So I'm glad that uh, that you saw the light and joined, joined the Aggies. But um, what is your favorite Aggie experience? It, it, is, it is kind of bizarre the way that I ended up at Texas A&M, right? So my undergrad was at UT, but while I was at UT, my one of my teacher assistants was an Aggie grad uh, who went and did his grad work at UT. We met there and we became good friends. We ended up working together in the fluids lab in, in Texas, uh, in, in UT. When we parted ways and he, uh, he went on and got his PhD from Virginia Tech. So his name is, is Andrew Dugleby. And when he got his PhD at Virginia Tech, we stayed in contact. Then he moved on and became a professor at Texas A&M here in College Station. He had an interesting research project, which had to do with fluids. And since he and I had really good experience in the fluids laboratory at UT, he thought, well, who else would be better to work on this with me than at UV? He called me up. It was an incredibly opportune time because I had just separated from my family business. And I said, this will be a great idea. I came out to A&M. The last time I was at A&M was 1995. And from 1995 to 2009, there was quite a few changes to the community, the size, the roads. Didn't recognize anything. Right. Uh, so in terms of experience, the shock of the size growth, 1995 to 2008, if you will, was tremendous. The idea was then, you know, we worked together at A&M. A&M was, at least in the mechanical engineering department, was gracious enough to accept me. Uh, and the reason I'm saying gracious enough, because I'm not a stellar student in the definition that is, or the metrics that I use say to define a stellar student, that is the great point average. I am not a stellar student as defined with a GPA. A&M is specifically mechanical engineering. We're able to put aside the GPA metric and say, you know what, there's more to this that meets the eye. Let's take this guy and put him in our graduate program. That was a very good, you know, obviously indication. I mean, that's a great experience to know that not all things are measured the same way all the time. Right. And circumstances are evaluated, which they were, which gave me the opportunity to join A&M Mechanical Engineering Program. So if you're talking about a great experience, that was encapsulating the great experience. Wow, that's awesome. So how did you get into your business now? Like, uh, can, you, can you tell us a little bit about that? So, you know, things don't always turn out as you plan. There's an old joke in, in, in my culture that says you make plans and God laughs. Well, nothing can be further from the truth here because we did not plan this. I did not plan this at all. Some things do get planned out. You know, we have people in industry that do plan a, a company. We have some great ones to look at examples that don't have to listen here, but we know they're there. People that have a goal, they have uh, an idea of what they want to do, and they move on from there and they achieve it. Not always, but they do achieve it. In our story, 
It's nothing like it. So when I graduated from Texas A&M, my friend Andrew Duggleby and I were really good friends still to this day. And we thought, well, it was 2009. Industry was in, still in the housing collapse uh, recovery mode. It was difficult for a graduate to find a job. And I'm not exactly one that can be considered a, a, an employee. It's, it's something that I, uh, I struggle with. And so I just started looking for work. And I found quite a bit of work, you know, contracting and whatnot in engineering. And um, my uh, friend Andrew said, why don't we open up an engineering company? I can bring my skill set to the table. You have your skill set. Let's see what happens. And we did that. So we formed Exosan in 2010, purely engineering. And that's all we did is, is provide engineering services to people that we found. It wasn't spectacular. It was not stellar. It was very much struggling. We our first six months was, was our office was with Eugene's. And, you know, that's how we worked. Um, I found some contract work in Houston, which I had to drive back and forth. Our first real contract came much later, which then we moved into a small office, uh, single office space university. You know, again, we were just an engineering company. 2011 came and my, uh, you could say my appetite for fabrication. It's something that I've always done. So I had to find a way to get back into fabrication manufacturing. And I spoke to my father, who was still running our family business in Houston, about some ideas that I had. He was not too much aligned with me, but he helped me find some customers that would be interested. And I did find one of our old customers, and he was interested in helping us get going. He gave us a contract to build what's called vacuum trailers, which is nothing but a water tank trailer, which hauls water either to and from well sites or uh, other other reasons you have these uh, tankers move just just water it is a tanker it's not hazardous it's not uh, too hard to do and we started from there that's how we started the exoset that's not how we ended up where we are today so how, how did you transform into from from a water to you because you're a very specialized manufacturer Right, so these the vacuum trailers. They do require quite a bit of engineering. They can't. They don't require it. You can't put engineering into them, which we do. On the back end, customers don't really care. They want to pay a set price so they can buy, uh, you know, from here from me or from ten, twenty, or forty or three hundred other companies that produce the same, if you will, in quotations, the same article, but doesn't have the same amount of engineering put into it. The vacuum trailer business is not very lucrative. The profit margins are are very thin. And again, as explained earlier, anyone with a welder, can put these together, no certifications are required, no authorizations, it's, it's quite simple. And just as a, as a coincidence, one of my customers, we were just walking in the yard one day and looking at one of the trailers we were about to finish, and he had a phone call. And he did not pick up the phone, he was actually somewhat frustrated and me sticking my nose where it doesn't belong. I said, why are you frustrated, what's the story? And he said, oh, this guy wants me to talk to him about these propane trailers. And I was astonished, I said, what is a propane trailer? Never heard of one. What is it? And he said, "Well, it's a it's a tank, like kind of like you build." But he says that don't don't even think about it because it's such a high end product. There's only three companies currently in the U.S. that manufacture them. It's a very uh, unique, you know. I don't know. So it's all I had to hear. Entrepreneur, just spidey sense going off. That's right. So we, my partner and I, Andrew, did incredible amount of research since we're both, you know. Uh, we were in the mindset at that time. I also started professing at AM in mechanical engineering. And then the mindset of an engineer, at least as I define one, is one that evaluates what's on the ground and see if anything can be improved upon and, and make it useful. You can't just improve if it's not useful, but if you can improve and make it useful, boy, do you have something. And that's what we did. So we immediately started investigating to see what these propane tankers are 
where are they used, how are they used, and can anything be done to improve? And my partner immediately recognized that there is an improvement that can be done. We looked at it together and we discovered that, uh, that the tankers that have been in the propane industry have always been these long, we call them Tic Tacs. They're just uh, a barrel with two uh, hemispherical ends on them. We call them hemispherical heads. They look the same. They have been the same way throughout the world for about 50 years. They have not evolved at all. And we recognize that we can make some changes and improve upon them. So for the next two years, uh, we've all we've done is work on the designs. In parallel, we worked on getting our certifications. You have to get certifications from the Department of Transportation. You have to get certifications from American Society of Mechanical Engineers, known as ASME. And you have to find customers. I mean, that's, you know, you, you can't just say, well, I want to do this and, and, you know, put them on the store shelf and hope that people come pick them up. It doesn't work this way. And it specifically doesn't work in, in this industry this way, right? Just because you create something doesn't mean people will buy it. Uh, so that's, so that's, that's how we kind of ended up where we are with our uh, transport uh, trailers for propane. So UV, when you looked at the current product that was out there and you said, look, I can, I can improve this, but I can improve this in a way that is valuable, not just to my curiosity as an engineer, but to the end user. How do you educate the user, the end user, that this is a better mousetrap? I think that's a million dollar question. It's not a $60 million question. The answer is it's not easy. There is unfortunately, well, fortunately and unfortunately, there's a mindset that people have that is hard to change. And, and I'll just illustrate another parallel industry, the housing market. Our housing market hasn't changed. I think in over 100 years, we build the same wood frame houses that fly away with the wind, that termites come and eat, and we haven't changed that industry. There are technologies out there that are equally as cheap, if you will, but 10 times better. But the clientele, if you will, has refused to acknowledge them or even accept them. Uh, in this particular industry, it's not easy. I recall that when we first had our, one of our first tankers done, actually our first tanker done, and we decided to include it in one of the industry expos, I was the laughing stock of the show. Not only was people were not marveled at it, I was laughed at incredibly. The mindset of the industry was, oh, he will be gone by next year. This is stupid. This is not relevant. Uh, what a dumb idea. I'm no longer the laughing stock, but in the in the beginning, absolutely, this was this was actually looked down upon. So you had to have a lot of intestinal fortitude and belief in yourself, in your engineering, in your technology to know as like the industry is wrong, and I will prove the industry wrong. My father, God bless his soul, had some smart philosophies which I've adopted. One of them was without being too stupid about it. When you find an idea, and if you want to go for it, you go as if there is no contingency, as if there is no back door. And again, without being too stupid about it, right? You don't want to send yourself into a brick wall and say, well, I can fly through it. You have to be somewhat cognitive of that reasoning. But the idea is that you go full, full forward, full steam ahead, and, and there is no back door. Because if you, if you say to yourself, I'll try it all, or you know, I'll, I hope this works, Boy, that leaves you with that. With that, just in, in, even in the mindset, there's an open, there's an open back door. I can always go out of it. And when that exists, when you can say I can always go out of it, I don't think your determination will be the same. I agree. Yeah, and I've heard the same thing in in all sorts of entrepreneurial circles of burn the bridges, burn the ships, make sure that you cannot go backwards, and the only way to go is forward. Again, I don't know if it's correct. 
but I, be, I believe it's I believe it's one of the ways that we can plow forward. And you know, you say to yourself, "Well, I've, I've given it all I have." Things don't always turn out as you wish them to be, right? There are circumstances where things don't turn out as you wish them to turn out. But you know, our life on this earth is so short, and I don't believe the safe route is the route that life is about. But that's a whole different topic. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. So kind of shifting gears a little bit here, has COVID affected your business? Has anything changed in your business because of this this whole COVID craziness? And how are you hacking and overcoming any of these changes and challenges that, that you're facing? Even the way you phrased the question was, was interesting. You said the craziness of it. And there is something very fundamental about this COVID. It has an effect. The first effect that we observe is... Our workers were concerned. Will we have a job? We had to have a meeting, and I conveyed, you know, my reasons and my my assessment of, if you will, of what I see, and I was able to provide some calm. In addition to that, we are very, very fortunate to be in the industry that we are in as Exocent because the U.S. government immediately labeled us as an essential business, as we are providing uh, literally. The, the label was propane-associated uh, uh, businesses and manufacturing. So the first concern was was to provide some calm. The second concern was safety. Are, are we going to be okay? What is going on? You know, will our families be okay? It's upsetting to me that our, both our social media and our industrial media have done, in my opinion, a inadequate job at explaining the facts, at discussing the, the alternatives, at discussing the circumstances of, of this virus. They've done a very poor job. In fact, what I think we have done is create a hysteria. And when that hysteria is manifested itself into millions of people, maybe billions of people, the circumstances or the ramifications could be severe in terms of where do we go and where do we move forward as industry and as a civilization? So the direct answer to your question is that we had to provide a level of comfort, a level of calmness, education. We are fortunate enough that you know we do have enough sources here to look at numbers, to assess the real numbers, to create our own graphs, which uh, reflect reality. And we did provide that to our workers. And that actually helped a lot to alleviate the fears which existed. So having your workers, it seems like that that was the biggest impact that your business had uh, from a supplier point of view, from a uh, from a client point of view. Have you seen about the same slowdown acceleration? No, there was a and there still probably is a bit of a um, slowing down of the of the business. And I think it, it comes from uncertainty, not necessarily directly from COVID, but as, as, as a circumstance of COVID, there's a, an uncertainty in, in, the, in our sector, if, at least. In the whole economy. The whole economy, I think, exists as well. We're, again, we're fortunate enough that it's, it's a very small industry, uh, and the effect has not been severe. There was an effect, but not a severe effect. That's amazing that you are you are in that industry, but I love how you have have identified the the biggest risks or the biggest impacts in saying that that's to your employees and giving them the calm, giving them the peace. And that's that's what an entrepreneur you've got to put on your leadership hat and you've got to say, I'm leading these people, I, not only from a technical standpoint, but to give you confidence. I love telling sea stories. So we're all ex-military. So I have my sea stories. I recall a very interesting occurrence that happened to us. We were in the Gulf. So 
So I was in the first Gulf War and spent quite a bit of time in the Gulf. And there was a, an incident uh, that happened on our ship where we lost power. That happens everyone now and then. It's nothing, it's nothing unusual to lose power. But we were in, a, in the Straits of Hormuz. And that's the last place you want to lose power because it can easily drift to unfriendly waters and then things turn bad very, very quickly. Not only did we lose power, we had two, uh, we call them boats in the water that did some operations. And our only way of putting the boats back onto the ship was with ship's power. But we had no ship's power. To this day, I marvel at the actions of our captain. I won't mention his name because maybe he doesn't want to be mentioned. I don't even know if he's alive today or not, but this is a long time ago. But the captain, he showed incredible calm, a calm that I have not seen since, in fact. And he organized, of course, we knew what, there were procedures in place. It, wasn't, it was not that there was no procedures of what to do in such an event. We had procedures in place. But to go from, you know, from procedures in place to actually practicing them in, in reality and, in, again, in the circumstance that we, we were given was interesting. But I absolutely recall I was on the deck of the ship. I was involved with the operation of, of bringing the boats back on, on, the, on the ship. And I just recall looking at the, the bridge where he was standing over looking everything. You know, he would get on the speaker and he, he, would walk, he walked the deck. But the calmness that the, that the captain exerted was marveled. And I remembered that this was something that I imprinted into my brain. I said, I will be that way. No matter what the circumstance, no matter what the panic mode should be, I will be like that. I will be calm because not being calm doesn't do anything. But I will maintain calmness at any event. And I must tell you that to this day, I've been able to fulfill that calmness, not only in, in, in the COVID situation, but in, in other things that we have here. We are a fab shop. It is a dangerous environment. The effect that it has is so immediate and so well conveyed that everybody around you all of a sudden feels the same level of relaxation. Okay, we have an incident. Let's address it, you know, item by item. And I absolutely attribute that characteristic to that captain in that time. UV, is that is that a mindset thing or is that something that you've practiced? Is it something that you've drawn from your personal life? Because you have to be grounded in times of uncertainty. My, my military experience tells me that that's tactical patience, but that is hard to learn. And hard to practice. I can tell you that I think the direct answer to your question is yes. You know, you have to adopt uh, a philosophy and then you have to uh, find a way to facilitate that philosophy and exercise that philosophy. And I think, yeah, I think that has to do with, with you know, what you've seen perhaps and what you're willing as a person to, I'm not going to use the word sacrifice because not much sacrifice, but to, to utilize. It is a choice. I believe it's a choice. So I want to dig into that a little bit because I've heard you say over and over here how being calm during this COVID period and the story that you just said there about the uh, captain being calm, what do you define as leadership? I mean, in you, I mean, I'm putting you on the spot here because we this wasn't any of our questions whatsoever, but I think it's important. <laughs> My definition of good leadership is the idea of being able to bring people along with you on your endeavor, on your on your journey, on your goal. And if you can achieve that, obviously, without uh, not under duress, so you don't want to put people under duress to achieve your goal. <laughs> if you can achieve that with free will, and I'll retrieve another another memory from my Navy career, which, by the way, was fantastic. I, I recommend everybody to join the military, but that's me. I was always a worker. That's just who I am. 
I enjoy work. I enjoy doing something that I see value in. I define good work as follows. This is important. I define good work as your signature or your shadow. Your work is your shadow left behind. The question is, what kind of shadow did you leave? Once you've done work, let's just say that you're an exemplary individual and you do incredible work. If I knew your kind of work and you left, you're gone. A year later, I come back and I say, who did this work? And I'm like, wait a second. I know this was Chris's work because I recognize this Chris's work. That's his signature. That's his shadow. It could be equally the opposite, right? It could be what crappy craftsmanship I know who did this work, right? Yep. So I define good work as your imprint left over after you're way, way gone. If I can define it in that way, then I can say that I have been of the mindset that I want to leave behind me a very good shadow. That when I do work, if Chris comes after me and says, who did this work? And says, oh, you know what? You did this work. I, that, that's how he works. And I was always interested in doing that and throughout my life. And I, of course, exercised that in the military. Because of that, on my second boat that I was on, long story short, the ship decided to send me all their troublemakers, people that refused to work in any department, they sent them to UV. And I'm not sure what that was, but they did. I wasn't high ranking, I was actually very low rank, but I had a very good name for good work ethics. And I remember the first individual that showed up in my division, and uh, he said, I'm, I'm here to report to you, you know, I'm here to work with you. And I said, great. And you know, the first morning, I mean, I have, I have my duties every day, we're on the boat, I took my tool bag, I took my, my stuff, and I left the uh, workspace, and I went to do my work. I came back 10 hours later, the same individual was sitting in the same chair where he was in the morning. And the same thing happened for the next three days. I never told him what to do. I never told him to do anything, in fact. On the fourth day, the individual said to me, can I join you? Can I, can I go along with you? I said, oh, absolutely. Here, take this, this, and this. We went to the job site. And he said, and I started working. He said, well, is there anything I can do? I said, oh, absolutely. This, this, and this. By the sixth day, the guy was a worker. Now, I think I had about an about a 85% success rate using this method. There are individuals that regardless of your leadership, regardless of how you, you ask people to, they won't. It's just they, don't, they, don't, they choose not to do so. But it was incredible to me that a, a large percentage of people did respond very positively to a very non-aggressive leadership. The old saying of leadership by example is not just a saying. If you use it, it actually works. Not always. Again, it's not 100% foolproof. There are individuals who will make a conscious choice to say, the heck with your, with your nonsense, I'm not here to do anything. That's fine. That's actually a great filter because you want people that will do stuff because of voluntary choices, not under duress. I don't yell at anybody. I never have had, I've never had to raise my voice at anyone. I've never demanded anyone to do anything. In fact, I had a, a worker years ago ask me, said, why are you so polite when you speak to us? You can just tell me what to do. And I said, no, I can't. I'm not your father. I'm here to work with you and you're here to work with me. The only thing I can do is ask you to do something. I cannot demand. So, well, so, I, so he said, well, I don't have to do it. I said, no, you don't. There are consequences for your decisions. But no, I cannot or should not demand of you to do anything. By free will, by mutual contract agreement, you choose to do what I ask. Yuvi, did you learn that style from your father? Did you learn that from a, uh, another NCO or an officer in the military? Is that just something to come natural to you? That's just who I am. That's just innate to my character. I am confrontational. I love confrontations. I love arguments. I believe that people do good work given the opportunity and given that it's their choice. I could be mistaken, but I believe that's true. 
have you had people in your past that have not reacted well to that type of leadership? Maybe they needed more structure and you parted ways? Absolutely. That's, you know, work and people when they work with me, I call that a, a marriage. And people laugh at my analogy, but I call it a marriage. When, when you come and, and if we work together, we are engaged. Literally, in the true sense of the word, we are engaged in an in a environment to produce something. I have my chore, you have your chore, and we are engaged to do it. I make the analogy that working in a company are like horses pulling a chariot or a wagon. You know, you have a team of horses, let's say six, eight horses pulling one of these Wells Fargo wagons. If one horse, after 400 miles, says, you know what, I'm done pulling for a while, I'm just not going to pull anymore. What? is the driver going to do with that horse? He's going to get rid of him. Is the part of the team? Yeah. He's out. Maybe he'll pasture him. He's out, right? There's no difference in work. If we are, you know, 40 people working together and one person says, you know what? I've done my time. I don't have to work as hard anymore. I did, I did two years of really good work. I'll just sit back and, and just let the other horses pull really hard. It doesn't work. I, I actually had a, an executive years ago make that exact claim. He said, I've done my time here. And I said... Nope, that's not how I interpret it. We don't stop ever. There is no stop other than true retirement. While you're engaged with your organization, it's a mutual understanding that you keep pulling forever until you decide not to pull any further, which is fine. But while we are engaged, you have to pull. We're together. We're together. So yes, if I have people that said, I'm done, you're not demanding, so I will not, great. Here's the door. Like, it was great knowing you. You're a great person. We're great friends. As it comes to work, we have a disagreement. And that's absolutely okay. That's some leadership lessons right here. I, I don't I don't think that we, we intended to have uh, such a deep dive into your leadership focus and in, in your view of it. But we really appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, I agree. So coming kind of back on track a little bit here with our interview questions, what's your big, hairy, audacious goal? Because we are in a small marketplace, if you will, there's going to be a limit. There's a very, very well-defined limit to what we can achieve. Unlike your Amazons, unlike your Apples, we do have an absolute ceiling that will be hard to go above that ceiling. Now, what that ceiling, how I define it, every transport in North America, I want it to be mine. So right now, there's quite a few that are still not mine, and I want every transport to know. And I'll tell you why. The reason I really want every one of my transports to be on the road, because they are a safer transport. And I do believe in, if you can fix the world, quote unquote, and the definition of fixing the world, in my culture, we have Literally, one of our mantras is called fix the world. In the Hebrew, it's tikkun olam. And the idea is that every human being has an ability to do something, and I will use the word righteous, uh, to do something which affects the humanity in a positive direction. In my world, in my abilities, it is building a vessel that is has to be used because that's who we are as, as a civilization, the direction we've taken. But if I can make it better and safer so that there's less potential damage to humanity, that is my goal. So I don't know if it's the next five years or 10 years, but we are we are in a growth mode for at least another uh, 10, 20 years. That's my huge goal. Very cool. Well, UV, we're, we're going to roll into the lightning round now. And so just wanted to ask you, uh, it, there's a lot of entrepreneurs that have a lot of different hacks. Sometimes they have life hacks, technology hacks, uh, time hacks. What is something that you say, this has been effective for me, this is my favorite hack? You won't like my response, Greg. I don't believe in hacks. Okay. 
I don't believe they exist. I don't believe that there's a magic wand. My response to that is there are, I suspect, in life and in business, obviously, because it's part of life, I suspect there are three pillars. We use the word three pillars in many attributes. In engineering, we use it many times. And I believe there are three pillars business as well. They are, one at least, is going to be who you are as a person, what is your goal, how much are you willing to sacrifice to attain that goal. The second pillar is that will the uh, terrain that you're in, will that support your goal? The third pillar is luck. So I'm uncomfortable with, with the word, is there a hack that you can, you know, that you've learned to hack? I don't think it exists. I think if you understand that those, those three goals or three pillars that make things happen or not happen, and I, and I don't mean to, to belittle the idea of a hack, just in my life, in my experience, I don't, I don't, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't align with my philosophy. To me, the hack will be to understand your environment, understand where you are, do the best that you can with your abilities because they are limited. And, you know, I hate to use the expression, hope for the best, but hope for the best. Because there is an absolute, there is an absolute level of luck. And when I use the word luck, it's not, you know, did I win the lottery or not? The idea of luck is, uh, where are the circumstances in the field are there to support what it is you're doing? There's a great joke that I go to where there's a, a very old religious individual. And from the time he's nine years old, he kneels at his bed and he prays to God. And by the time he's 20 years old, he changes his prayer and he says, Oh, dear God Almighty, let me win the lottery. And he does this religiously every Friday. He kneels. And one day when he's 95 years old, he does the same thing. He kneels. Oh, God, can I just want win the lottery? When all of a sudden, great rumble and thunder, his roof is torn off. God peers down in his bedroom and says, Hey, Jacob, do you think about buying a ticket? <laughs> <laughs> and that is to say that you know we can't just sit back and hope for things to happen you have to partake in your goals and again they may or may not come to fruition but you have to be prepared you have to be prepared so the next question here is what book podcast or al album right that our listeners can listen to right now that will help them right now if you're going to be in business there are two books that, to me, are crucial. Obviously, not the only two books, because if it was the only two books, there would no, be no need for business school. But <laughs> uh, the two books that I think have been incredible influence on, on my career, Andrew Carnegie. And there's uh, quite a few autobiographies on Andrew Carnegie. I ran into him by mistake in one of my history classes and fell in love with him. Not the fact, so Andrew Carnegie was a very interesting individual, but not the fact where he shot his workers where they didn't show up to work. I don't agree with that philosophy because that would be under duress, which I am against. But as he had some really good philosophies about how to run a business, which are were equally smart in the earlier, earlier 20th century and are equally as important in our 21st century because those are fundamental philosophies which have not change. The next one is the goal. And that book is taught by uh, business schools, a well, well read book to help anyone in business. Great. Well, is there a challenge that you and your business is facing and how can the Aggie Network support you overcoming that? The challenges that many small businesses face, especially growing businesses, is cash flow. Uh, anybody who wants to go into business needs to understand that unless they have a gold mine, uh, either in the business or in reality, they're going to face a challenge in uh, cash flow, which is to say they're going to face a challenge in banking. Uh, I have been, I guess, lucky enough that I was able to convince, if you will, my bankers that our goal is, is good and they should help me, uh, that they should help support me. 
I've had some uh, some some family assistance in terms of uh, money, which again you cannot you cannot exist in this world in our industry without money. I don't think the Aggie Network is in the place right now to, to do that, and I would not be asking for it. But it's nice to maintain relationships. We are a small community. I mean, I will I don't sell any of my products to the community because they 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 don't don't belong. But it is nice to be part of the community. So I don't I don't not sure that's a direct answer, but that's where we are. No, that that's very good. But I think, and I think every entrepreneur that's out there knows that the cash is king, but cash flow is queen. And to be able to to have a vision and to be able to say, okay, here's where I want to go, and then have your banker that's actually an asset to you support that. Yeah, I agree absolutely. So, how can the Aggie Network uh, get in touch with you to help support you if there is anything that they can do? Pigeons, send some pigeons. <laughs> That's the best answer we've had yet. <laughs> I'll send them back with an olive branch. <laughs> I will just keep in touch. You know, I mean, I'm easily found. I mean, we're not, we're not shy. We you know we absolutely love being part of this. There are many things that can happen here in a good way. Very much so. Well, Yuvi, thank you so much for the lessons in leadership. <laughs> Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for your support of uh, Aggie Growth Hacks and the entrepreneurs that, that listen to this. Uh, I know we've taken a lot of your time today, but I know Chris and I have have enjoyed it thoroughly. So thank you from the bottom of our, of our hearts. Oh, thanks for inviting me. And it's, it's a pleasure. It's, you know, only when you when you speak your mind, it actually helps uh, evolve it even further. So thank you for the opportunity. How about that, Eggs? What a lesson in leadership that we got there. There were so many things, so many valuable hacks that UV shared with us. What was your favorite, Greg? Well, Chris, I think the favorite thing, I actually got little goose pimples when he talked about it. When he talked about that story about his former Navy captain, that they were in a very sensitive and potentially dangerous situation. And he looked back at that captain and he just had calmness. You had to know that that captain had a million things on his mind, trying to deal with everything on the ship higher above. And you and I both know from a military experience that it is not just the vessel of the ship that's in that situation, but to be able to provide that calmness and then for UV to, to look at that and say, that will be me. And in their times, and he didn't go into too much, but there, there were, I kind of inferred that there were some times that there were some big accidents or something happened in his company. And he had to be like, that will be me. I will be calm. COVID happening, I will be calm. I will show my employees that we are going to get through this, that we are going to be strong. And that example of leadership, man, I, I was so stoked when he said that. I agree. You know, I mean, uh, leadership is huge. And I think that's what this whole episode was really about was uh, leadership and so forth. The biggest takeaway that I had, though, was a little bit different. And he says he doesn't believe in hacks. However, this is a hack. 100%. This is a hack. He went to a convention with his new design for this propane tank transport, tank right? Transport, yep. You know, and he had a new design hadn't been changed in 50 years. And all of a sudden he's got a brand new design and he was laughed at, at this convention. He plowed through it though. He went forward with their design, with their ideas and so forth. I think that we as entrepreneurs, and I, and I read this in a book by Chet Holmes, right? That us as entrepreneurs, we have to be pigheaded. 
We have to know that we are right, that we are going to get through this and we're going to move forward and we have to have determination and move forward with our ideas, with our designs, with with our business. And we have to show that to our employees that we are going to be that pigheaded. We are moving forward no matter what. I think that's that's something huge for any leader to learn. And that's huge for, for any entrepreneur to have in their arsenal, if you will, of tools to use moving forward as an entrepreneur. Uh, I agree 100% because no one's going to care about your baby, about your business more than you. And so when everybody else is not sure, you as the leader have to be 1000% sure and you have to have confidence in yourself. But I also like that he said, you know, don't be stupid about it. You know, if if you're making a buggy whip and the cars are coming on, you know, you could still be in your conviction that that is a great thing to do, but you can't be stupid about it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Well, that's going to do it for another episode of Aggie Growth Hacks. We hope that you enjoyed it and that you'll leave us a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbeam, or wherever you found us. Be sure to check out our website at aggiegrowthhacks.com where you can hear this episode as well as all of our future episodes. We'd love to connect with you and we'd love to hear about your favorite hacks and feature you and your business on a future episode. Aggie Growth Hacks was produced by Kyle Ackerman and Ben Wiggins with Podcast Architects. We also want to give a huge shout out to our sponsor, the McFerrin Center for Entrepreneurship at Texas A&M University. Since 1999, the McFerrin Center for Entrepreneurship has served as the hub of our entrepreneurship for Texas A&M. If you're an Aggie entrepreneur or even a entrepreneur, head over to their website to find a program that's right for you. Join us next time when we connect with other great Aggie entrepreneurs and learn how they hack their growth. Until then, I'm Chris Hunter. And I'm Greg Barton. Thanks and gig'em. <laughs>